I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Caroline Nkube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law at the University of Cape Town. She is also the South African Research Chair in Intellectual Property, Innovation and Development. She is a member of the African Policy Research and Advisory Group on STI, a member of the Advisory Board of the African Network of International Economic Law, and of the Academy of Science of South Africa. Additionally, she is the co-editor of the South African Intellectual Property Law Journal, and she joins us in our series on women in law. Welcome to the show, Prof. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Dr. Prof. Kubert, to begin with, please can you tell us a bit more about the work that you do and the responsibilities that are associated with heading up the Department of Commercial Law? So describing the the role that an academic head of department plays is is quite a mission because the role is so broad. Um, There are so many things that one has to look after. And maybe I should just rattle off a list and maybe that will give some idea. So the, the general description would be to provide academic leadership to a department. Our department commercial law is the largest in the faculty of law at GCT. So it has a lot of academics and a lot of students. And so as HOD, my role then would be to play a pastoral role uh, with regards to the students, uh, primarily with regard to their studies. And so it's about the departmental offerings, the courses are offered on time properly to a high standard, exams are written, marked, results are out. So that's really from the student perspective. Then from the staff perspective, then um, and a head of department would look after the professional development of her colleagues. Um, so that entails human resources management, um, career advancement, promotion. So it's a really broad range. That's some of the things that one would do. And how many students are in the faculty? That is a very hard question to answer. Uh, but I know that in first year, our law students are typically around 280 to 300 uh, in the law faculty. Undergraduate, there is some attrition as they go through the stages. But so if one says about 300 first year, um, maybe you're talking 500 students. This is a, a thumbs up, but I think about that. Uh, but in our department, we don't only teach law students. We also teach students in the other faculties, in the professional disciplines, who need to do commercial law courses like your accountants, your engineers. And so there we have thousands of students in the other faculties. It sounds like it's very much an applied discipline, the way it lends itself to other professions, so be it in the accountancy space or otherwise. Absolutely correct. And having taught on some of those courses, I really enjoyed them because that's where you encounter the real world. That's where you talk to students in commerce. And when you rattle off some commercial law terms, they talk to you about real life, about, you know, what they would do as company secretaries. And so, yes, the the application of the law in other faculties is fascinating. And we're really proud to be in this department. And when we're talking about real life applications, Do you think there's enough collaboration between industry and academia? And how best do you think those relationships can be fostered? 
I think that there, there is some relationship, although sometimes I think that in, in our discipline, in law, it might be somewhat an uneasy one uh, in the sense that when we train students in the law, we are not necessarily training them for a particular profession. We don't feel that we're churning out lawyers to go into private practice. We want a broader uh, group of students, whereas perhaps the industry is looking to us to actually provide them with these professionals. And therein lies the unease between us, I think, uh, in our uh, ambitions and objectives. But I think we collaborate really well. Uh, law firms, for example, take our students on back work placements. They take them uh, for longer placements. They hire them and they provide a lot of capacity. So there is quite a lot of collaboration, I think, between us and the legal profession. And getting that throughput right is so important because I think long gone are the days when people would be studying for fun. It's about, well, what can I do with this qualification and how can I apply it in the field of practice? So given that notion, how do you see the responsibilities of universities towards shaping the thinking of students as the countries or perhaps the continent's future socio-political or economic players? I think we play a really vital role. I think our role is to uh, temper perhaps our students' ambitions. Um, if their ambitions are to go in one direction and to see perhaps corporate legal practice, I believe it's our role to open their eyes wider and say, but there are many other areas of law. There's public interest. You can go this way. You can go that way. So um, our role then I think is to temper ambitions and perhaps even to broaden horizons um, to say, you know, there are many things that you could do with your, with your qualification. And the world is changing so rapidly that what we learned in the past is potentially redundant as we move into the future. But an important question I have to ask you, because we are a gender-based program, naturally, mm. we are always looking at developments from a woman's point of view or developments mm. towards what are happening, what is happening for women. So from your perspective, what would you say are some of the, the, the key challenges or the gains that women in law have uh, achieved in the recent past? Women in law have really achieved a lot, I think, in South Africa, continentally and perhaps globally. And one good example of this is, uh, although it's really belated, but we finally saw this year uh, a female judge in the running for the role of chief justice. Um, and so that's quite interesting to finally see a woman vying for a position at that level um, in the judicial system. And then of course, if you look globally, uh, you can see we have now finally the director general of the WTO who's female. And of course, she's not a lawyer, but uh, that uh, entails a lot of trade law, uh, her role. And so for us, that's really exciting for women in law. In the introduction, I'd mentioned that you hold the National Research Foundation South African Research Chairs Initiative, or SACHI, for intellectual property, innovation, and development. And just for a bit of background, SACHI is an intervention by the government of South Africa, which is designed to significantly expand the scientific research base of the country in a way which is relevant to national development and in support of making South Africa an internationally competitive global knowledge economy. What does this chair mean to you and how do you use it? Let me start by how I use it, because the way in which I use it uh, is powered by what it means to me. So um, we use the chair uh, to build a very strong pipeline 
um, of legal scholars with a social justice outlook. So obviously our area of expertise would be intellectual property, but it's very closely aligned to innovation and development. And so how we use it is to get students at NLB level already interested in these areas. And so we recruit them in their final year to work with us as research assistants to expose them to research. Then we have LLM students, masters and law students who write dissertations in areas to do with intellectual property, protection of traditional knowledge, gender um, aspects of intellectual property and innovation. And then we have doctoral candidates and postdoctoral scholars. And so really the, the chair is being used to grow this very strong pipeline um, of academic leaders with legal qualifications who can understand how intellectual property, innovation and development align. And so for me, it, it means an awful lot. It's really important. And one of the things that drive me is to actually make a contribution wherever, whatever I'm doing, I always want to, to see what the contribution is. And so with the chair, I actually see the tangible contribution because you see the students grow in their roles and graduate um, after a couple of years. You're building this talent pipeline. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's it, yeah. Uh, it's also very nice to see that some of our doctoral candidates are, are colleagues in a sense. So some work with me at the University of Cape Town, others are lecturers at the University of Free State. And so it's a pipeline of, you know, students emerging, but also capacity building for actually my own colleagues in various institutions in the country. Law tends to be quite jurisdictional in terms of different countries have got a different views and different forms of legislation apply. But the reality is we are operating in a globally connected society where boundaries have become quite porous. Can you tell us about some of the collaborations you've been working on with your counterparts in other countries? So that has been one of the highlights of my career, uh, the ability to work with colleagues across uh, the world. So let me start about uh, talking about uh, colleagues with whom I work on the African continent, uh, because charity begins at home, right? So I've had the absolute joy of working with colleagues uh, in universities in Kenya, Strathmore University, uh, universities in Egypt, the American University in Cairo, um, in Nigeria at the Nigerian Institute of Advanced Legal Studies. And all of this happens under the broad umbrella of a project called the Open African Innovation Research Partnership. So those are my collaborations on the continent. Uh, beyond that formal structure, uh, working through my own networks, I have collaborated with colleagues in Mozambique, for example. Um, so that's the African continent. And then beyond the continent, um, I've also had the absolute privilege of working with colleagues um, at the University of Colorado, uh, working with colleagues at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Um, and so it's been really enlightening to actually work. And on some of these projects, I take students with and that's also again quite quite an achievement to have them to take them with us to international conferences and to have them network with fellows. In terms of some of the work that you've done in Kenya or Egypt or Nigeria or, or even in Mozambique, what has been some of the subject matter that you've dealt with? So in this broad project that I spoke about, uh, the Open Air Project or Network, we look primarily at innovation and how it, it it pans out uh, as being um, being governed by intellectual property, which is a knowledge governance system. So we look at a variety of things like the protection of traditional knowledge uh, in Kenya. Um, and right now, this 
most recent collaboration that I've just completed uh, with a colleague from Mozambique and a colleague uh, from Kenya, we were looking at uh, patents and access to medicines in this particular context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what I can say about that is, uh, is that some of the work that we do is a response to immediate circumstances, COVID-19 pandemic, need for vaccines. So we work on that. And then the rest of it is perhaps more broader, uh, more stable, looking at innovation and intellectual property um, on the continent. Listening to what you're saying, it sounds like your work and knowledge base applies to such a variety of different industries, which must be incredibly exciting to see how those developments go forth. It is, it is. And, and one learns so much uh, when you talk about these things. So just to go back to the intellectual property and vaccines and access to medicines, I find myself now starting to learn about the economics um, of distribution of medicines, um, the regulatory uh, controls, and all of this really isn't intellectual property law, but one has to learn about those things. And so the research is incredibly exciting in that sense. And very real life. Yes. So in addition to the work that you do, you are a member of the African Policy Research Advisory Group on SDI, a member of the advisory board of the African Network of International Economic Law and the Academy of Science of South Africa. And you are co-editor of the South African Intellectual Property Law. Before I ask you how you find time to do all of this, I wanted to find out your views on academic citizenship and being part of growing the academic community and also with respect to the load that you carry as, as being a woman in academia? I believe that it's really important to be a good academic citizen and um, you know this will come off as off center but, but you know when you gift somebody a present we tend to in our humanity buy something that we would have liked right you that's how you select a present and I think in my role uh, in, in you know the various aspects of academia it's almost that I tried to be that which I sought from others to others. So where I wanted a good mentor, I try and be that good mentor. Where I thought I needed a friendly face and a, a sounding board on an advisory board in the past, I become that. So in a sense, I'm gifting others what I myself wanted and needed. That's such a fantastic philosophy. And now let's ask that question. How do you manage to accomplish all of your academic achievements and still have uh, a busy home life and keep everything together what's your secret <laughs> my secret is that I love what I do um, and so I think it's easy to give of yourself to something that you believe in uh, that you're committed to because it's it's almost like breathing so that's why I think I'm so committed to all of it. Uh, and of course, um, it's, it's been hard. Uh, one needs to burn the candle at both ends, which I shouldn't do. But, um, you know, if you're doing it, you know, as a labor of love, it's, it's somewhat easier. That's so true. When you're doing something you love, it often doesn't feel like work. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Professor Caroline Kube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Kube, you hold a PhD in IP law from the University of Cape Town 
an LLM from the University of Cambridge, and an LLB from the University of Zimbabwe. So you've you've tracked quite a a journey around the world with your qualifications. Tell us what attracted you to the field of law. So again, I'm going to start with a little laugh. I think it's uh, maybe something that's always been innate in me, so I can recall myself um, as a little girl. So I'm the oldest of five. Uh, I recall myself as a little girl writing notes to my parents when I felt that they had treated one of my brothers unfairly or favored another one. And so when I look back, I see, oh, I actually was pleading my brother's uh, cases, being an advocate for them uh, at a very young age and seeking justice. So I think this notion of fairness and justice is one that I've always held. And, you know, it seemed naturally that going into a career in the law would assist me with that. And tell us about the role of education in your life. So education is really important. Um, It has been um, the key um, to a lot of my mobility. Uh, You know, you spoke about uh, the three different degrees from the three countries that I've uh, acquired, and that actually helped me to be able to move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, because law is jurisdiction bound. If you're trained in one country, you tend to stay there. But um, if you then get your training from different countries, there's some level of flexibility and mobility that you acquire. So for me, education actually has been the key that has allowed me to move across and also uh, been the key that allows me to link uh, with different colleagues and friends on different countries and continents. And how do you see education as an instrument of empowerment for girls and women? That's a a lesson that uh, was drilled into me, I think, from a a very young age. Um, And so one looks to, you know, your own life and how you've been raised. And so I could see in bold, bright colors that education was what liberated women in in the various generations in my own family. So my maternal grandmother wasn't educated. She was homebound and she always insisted that she wanted us to be educated. I could see that my mother got some education that took us some some place, you know, and she always said to me, I want you to be more educated than I am. And so I could see in the generations of my own family that each generation did better than the previous one. And the reason for that frequently turned on the education that they had acquired. I love that view of building and building for the next generation and opening those doors of of possibilities and opportunities. Going back towards the the law aspect, I came across a quote from the then International Development Law Organization's Director General, Irene Khan, where she said, the quality of justice for women improves when women are not just consumers of justice, but also providers of justice. I found it a, a very profound remark What's your perspective on the statement? I I agree wholeheartedly with that statement because I think whoever is making the call, whoever is adjudicating, um, if that person can relate to the party, so if I'm a woman appearing for another woman before a female judge, um, I'm already have already covered a lot of ground because I believe that the judicial officer already relates to the client, to the parties, Uh, she understands certain things. And so I don't have to be making a case for certain fundamentals. Whereas if the judicial officer 
was of a different gender, then you have to start right from the beginning and you might face um, some difficulty in actually convincing them of certain aspects. So I think that women as providers of justice um, are really important. Um, they consolidate the playing field. They, they level out the playing field, I think, for female litigants because they can relate to them. Or even if they don't relate, they can understand and appreciate um, the positions that have been advanced on behalf of those women. Yes, is that degree of of empathy and being able to identify with someone more readily when you are perhaps aware of the circumstances and their lived experiences. Our program, Womanity, Woman in Unity, is, is all about celebrating women's achievements, as I mentioned in the introduction, in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, sadly, gender-based violence, and socioeconomic class division. Can you tell us about some of the obstacles that you've encountered as a woman whilst you've been building your career and how you overcame them and really utilizing your experiences in a similar way where we were talking about the generational development of providing learnings. So other women going through similar experiences have a, a tool to combat them. So that's a really loaded question, and that's one on which I could go on and on about. I mean, because once you start to tell the story of your own personal circumstances and your own personal your own personal challenges, then of course there's always a lot to tell. So I'm going to try and do some of that, but also speak generally because I know that not all of our challenges are the same; uh, they're different. So I wanted to say, as a starting gambit, that I would say that the obstacles that I face can potentially be divided into two. So the personal and the professional. And in each of those categories, those challenges would have been influenced by my gender. So when I say the personal, then, um, you know, my stage in life, you know, when I had younger children, that was really difficult because I couldn't then um, participate in, in a full academic life, um, attend conferences, lunchtime seminars, travel. I couldn't do all of that because I had family uh, commitments that I had to, to fulfill. Uh, so you can see quite easily how the personal then bleeds into the professional because I have this home life and these um, obligations, they then impact on my engagement professionally. Um, how did I deal with that? It was really difficult, um, but I think that uh, in the end, uh, one of the main tools was acceptance. Accepting that as one goes through life, one does go through certain stages and that you need to accept the stage at which you are young mother, young children, and then just operate within the realm of what is possible within that stage. And as you progress to other stages, then you can broaden your activities. And so I think that has been quite key for me, acceptance. Um, secondly, also building support systems because these are important. Uh, one of the biggest challenges for me was of course the, the movement from one country to another, uh, immigration and coming to South Africa and then growing this family uh, quite frankly, just on my own, just a nuclear family, nobody else. So we had no support and that was really difficult. And so we had to build um, friendships and support um, to assist us in, in raising our children. So acceptance and support networks, I think, would be the key. Thanks for sharing your experiences. And as I was listening to you, you know, this is one of the realities that many women face on how you juggle and manage between raising your children and then pursuing with your, your career. 
And I often wonder if there's perhaps a, a way of almost being late bloomers that we can look at sort of delaying those career promotions after motherhood, although that never ends because they will forever be your children. But I wonder if there are some types of, of interventions where we're not left behind the, the curve of, of male counterparts, that we just go on a little bit longer. I'm not sure that there actually are intentional interventions uh, that make sure that women don't get left behind. I think that we are faced with the reality that we do get left behind uh, in those formative years uh, of you know, our children's lives, for example. Uh, some of us are coping with uh, looking after aged parents. Whatever the challenge is that's personal that a female has to encounter, I think that we do get left behind. Um, and then we just have to speed up at later stages to catch up. Yeah, and you're so right that that catch-up process might not happen because when you are done with the lower end of the spectrum of your own children, then you have to contend with aging and ailing parents at the other end of the spectrum. And I loved what you said about building in support networks that may not directly be family but it could be um, through friends or establishing some type of support structure to benefit women. 100%. Uh, and I think that um, in those circumstances or places where there aren't intentional interventions that are provided, for example, by one's employer, that of course then um, it's up to us to build our own networks and to build our own interventions um, to help each other along. Given what you know now and your lived experiences, if you had a, let's say, a, a magic glass ball or globe to look into the future for women, what do you think we need to do to build a more egalitarian society where no limits are imposed on women? One of the main things we probably need to reconsider or reconfigure is our perceptions of, of gender roles in families, in society. Uh, perhaps we should be thinking about uh, more fair ways of actually uh, bearing those burdens, whether they be childbearing or looking after old or aged family members. So I think that would be key, uh, a more fairer distribution of, of some of these um, obligations that we have in our personal lives. And some of those elements are so culturally ingrained into our, our psyche and stereotypical roles that we have been playing as women and have kind of been programmed. That's true. Um, and I hope you can uh, hear the, the smile uh, in my voice. Uh, I'm thinking about this now almost cliched um, image that we see often. I see often on social media, you will see a picture of a professor, male or female, carrying a baby. And then the, the caption will be, oh, I had no way to leave my baby. So I brought the baby to class and my professor uh, is carrying the baby. So I, you know, it's, it's, it's cliched, it's, it's sweet, it's kind. I think that uh, what needs to happen is, is more than those individual um, displays of empathy and kindness from the individual professors uh, who take on their students, uh, children in class to relieve them. Uh, maybe we should have on our campuses uh, places, spaces where our students can bring their children uh, and so they can attend classes uh, unencumbered. So that would be, for example, one of the intentional interventions that uh, we might bring into academic spaces. 
And why not? It's such a practical idea. Yeah, why not? Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to Professor Caroline Kube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Kube, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their lifetime across their respective discipline is about some of the factors that they believe have contributed to their success. Some people speak about discipline, values, focus, faith. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers for your success? Every single one of those has been. um, I believe uh, in planning. I believe in um, putting a vision down and putting some faith behind that vision. being disciplined to push through even when it looks like you're not going to attain this goal, like you've missed the boat by a thousand miles. I believe you still keep pushing, uh, you draw on your faith. And somehow um, that has always stood me in good stead. Um, I've been astounded to pick up pieces of paper many years later to find that I had actually written something down as something I wanted to do and then got distracted, uh, got discouraged. But you find eventually later on, you're so surprised that you actually did um, actually um, achieve that. So I do believe in, in writing things down. There, there's something about that, putting your plans to paper, and then just doing the work, just slogging, even when it seems hopeless. And please tell us about a few pivotal moments in your life growing up that have shaped you. That is a really difficult question. Um, and, and one that's hard to answer. I would say for me, though, it is probably my subject choice uh, in high school. Looking back, the story is unbelievable, but it's true. So my parents dropped me off at a boarding school where I was to do my advanced uh, level, my Cambridge A-levels, and my subjects then were maths, biology, and I think geography. Uh, and they'd signed the paperwork and, and that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, for some reason, I did not take a liking to the maths teacher and I moved myself from maths. Uh, so I completely did the subject change without parental approval. I cannot believe how that happened because I was 16, but it happened. Uh, I think for me that was pivotal. So I changed from this mixed bag of subjects into a pure arts curriculum. And I think that's what helped me um, to actually achieve the marks that I then needed to get into law school. So that for me probably is one of the most pivotal moments, a little bit of mischief that actually paid out in the end. That's a great story. And tell us, who've been some of the strong female role models in your life? So this question, again, always grabs me. Um, So it's easy when confronted with this question to rattle off the names of um, high-achieving women who everybody can think of and can see, you know, your grass on the shelves. Um, I, I am 
inspired by her. She's just one name that always comes to mind. But I think in addition to those high-flying women, I'm also really inspired by women like myself, the woman I see on the street doing her utmost to achieve whatever she needs to achieve, dragging her two children behind her. So I think for me, it is the high flyers that stand out. And then it is the women that one encounters in everyday life doing their utmost um, to achieve whatever goal they've set for themselves. And you actually see them achieving it. So um, I don't know how better to put that, but it's seeing women doing ordinary life in extraordinary ways and making an outstanding contribution to their families. That's really what I'm inspired by. And that's the thing, isn't it? We're all ordinary, but somehow the work that we do becomes the extraordinary. That's true. And and often I think that uh, as women live their lives and, and do all of these things, they don't always think that they're doing anything extraordinary. They're just being them and contributing. But when you're on the outside looking in, you do see how extraordinary their achievements are and what they're doing. And briefly, please tell us a little bit more about your journey, because you you shared with us that you've gone across different countries to do your studies that you had a little bit of a, a rebellion in a positive way when you went off to boarding school. What was the, the, the key or the angle that took you through your, your different phases? The, the, the common thread or the driving force that took you from Zimbabwe to South Africa to the UK? Again, very difficult to answer. But I think, um, you know, particularly moving from uh, Zimbabwe to go to the UK to do my LLM there, that was just pure, pure wanting to try out life, to learn something different, to, to earn a degree from a different country, to, to find out what the world had to offer. Really, it was curiosity and a desire to learn from a different uh, perspective. That's what got me going. And I, I applied almost again. It's just like, let me just try. Nothing may come out of it. And then something did come out of it. Um, but once I got there and I got into my studies, and um, once again, I did a mixed bag of courses because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was a bit of intellectual property law, international law, corporate law. And in that mixed bag, then the bug bit, intellectual property, I then realized that this is where I wanted to go. And this is what got me. And, and so that was that, that was it. Um, so I suppose the curiosity paid off and having a mixed bag, then it allowed me to actually discover what it was that was really uh, interesting for me. Um, the move uh, beyond um, Cambridge, beyond a, a master's degree to a PhD, uh, that was the result of, of real life experience. Uh, after completing my master's, I did go uh, into practice for a large commercial firm in Harare. Uh, I very quickly learned that uh, legal commercial practice was not for me. It's not what I wanted to do. Um, it didn't inspire me, didn't fire me up. Um, I didn't feel I could live my life in the pursuit of, you know, mergers and acquisitions and what that, that didn't mean anything to me. Um, and so again, uh, an opportunity um, arose uh, for me to joined the University of Zimbabwe to teach. Um, and so I went off there because I decided that commercial legal practice was not it. So academia possibly was it. And once I was there again, you know, I, I fell in love with the work. And so it seems to me always that uh, curiosity leads me to interesting places and opens up avenues. And now I understand why you try to introduce a broader perspective amongst your students so that they get a view of what all those options are that are available to them. 
you don't know what it is uh, unless you actually open yourself to the opportunity and to the chance. Yeah. Now, lastly, as we close out our conversation and being that this is Youth Month, please, can you share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the continent who are listening to us? The moment is ours. The moment is yours. I should say yours because I think I'm no longer that young anymore. So when we talk about stats and we talk about the the demographics of of our continent, Africa, we find that by and large, it is a youthful continent um, and that it has a majority of females. And so the opportunity is ours, is yours. Uh, We're in the majority. And when you start to consider business and who's driving business on the continent and who's leading when it comes to innovation, you find again, it's women and youth. And the hopes of the continent, in fact, are pinned on women and youth. When you look at the African continental free trade area and, and the messages it's trying to push across, it keeps on saying, um, the secretariat or the leadership um, keeps on saying, we want more women and youth to actually start to trade across the continent. And so it is in that sense that I say um, that the moment is ours, is yours. If you're young, if you're female, the continent is wide open. Why don't you reach out? Take it. That is such a fantastic message. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Malka. It's, it's been fun. I'm surprised that, you know, more than 40 minutes have passed. Uh, it's been a pure pleasure and joy chatting to you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Caroline Nkube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law at the University of Cape Town.